welcome to yet another episode of the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is a close friend of mine, George Kibala Bauer, the Director of Digital Utilities at TSMA. Welcome, George. Hey, Sanjoy. Great to be on with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Right. One of the things that I really want to get out of this podcast, and I hope will be very useful for donors and foundations who want to use grants, their philanthropic capital, for promoting climate technology innovation. And this podcast will help them understand a real example of how that works. But maybe we start by asking you to introduce yourself. Thanks, Sanjoy. I have a particular passion for understanding how these digital innovations can help crowd in more financing, both public and private, into basic utility service delivery and how digital innovations can also help extend service delivery to those currently underserved by services. In terms of my background, I have a background in uh, developmental economics and prior to working at the GSMA, I've gained experience uh, in strategic consulting, development finance, uh, economic research, and also government affairs. I'm particularly interested also in innovations related to climate tech. Right. Thank you for that introduction. Let's talk about the grant program that you have run. Give our audience a sense of how many grants have you given out in this last several years to how many companies and projects? Thanks, Sanjoy. Yeah, um, in terms of how our program operates, we kind of have four uh, main functions as a program. And the most important one is supporting uh, entrepreneurs in low and middle income countries. So through catalytic uh, grant funding, uh, we also, on, beyond that, do a lot of research and insights, uh, partnership support and technical advice. But our work really centers quite a bit around this uh, providing of catalytic support to um, innovators in low and middle income countries. And throughout our program history, we've extended 53 grants to 50 organizations that since uh, 2013. Uh, have dispersed more than 9 million pounds in grant funding to those innovators. In terms of our most recent round, uh, we've recently announced on digital urban services, we've recently extended a further 10 grants to 10 uh, different organizations worth about 1.3 million pounds. So the total number of grants, including this most recent round, is now at 63 grants. Yeah, so that's 63 grants about 9 million total fund grants money. I'm sure you can help them by saying how much is the typical size of an individual grant, because I know you have a couple of different variations of that. Exactly. So in terms of the the size of the grant, it differs a bit from project to project, but the most recent round on digital urban services, we had two different types of grants. One was a seed grant for very early stage uh, companies, and the other was a market validation grant for ideas that have already been proven in the market, but uh, would have to be uh, scaled or replicated in another market. And depending, the seed grants uh, used to range uh, from 100 to 200,000 pounds, and the market validation grants were at a bit higher uh, ticket size of about uh, 250,000 to 300,000 pounds. In our most recent round on digital urban services, we didn't sort of make this explicit distinction between uh, seed and market validation grants, but we made determinations on a project-to-project basis. And uh, the ticket size in the most recent round uh, ranged from 150 
thousand pounds to 250,000 pounds, depending on the project. In our most recent round, we also had, you know, quite an explicit match funding requirement. So obviously that that also determined uh, the possible grant size for some of the applicants that applied to our fund as well. Um, but this, that's, that's kind of where uh, we are in terms of sort of the average uh, ticket size. Right. John, before we get down to the history and talk about, you know, the grants you did at the beginning, maybe just tell us a little bit about the new round that you did. So for the recent, most recent round on essential urban services, we focused on energy, water, sanitation, and then fourth sector, which we funded for the first time is uh, plastics and waste management. And within energy, the goal was really to replicate and scale model for clean cooking, test and scale generation and storage solutions for urban SMEs to replace diesel generators. And also in the water sector, it was really around deepening and broadening evidence for investment by utilities and development finance institutions in pay-as-you-go models and solutions that can help utilities reduce non-revenue water. In sanitation, it was mostly around deepening the evidence for digital tools to support the scale of sanitation services through new financial models and, and to understand what role digital solutions can play in improved logistics and uh, revenue collection management, private sanitation service provider. Lastly, in plastics and waste management, we've really looked at the role of digital solutions to optimize the collection logistics, enable a circular economy solutions, and provide uh, increased transparency and traceability for municipalities and upstream buyers. Now let's go back to history. And uh, let's talk about the pay-as-you-go industry. Okay. With regards to our history in the off-grid solar sector, as I mentioned, we have dispersed uh, 53 grants to 50 organizations as a program, kind of our history. And of those 53 grants, 33 of them were in the energy sector. And within the energy sector, the bulk of our funding has gone to pay-as-you-go solar home system uh, companies, around 22 uh, grants out of the 33 in energy. And um, starting in 2013, the program funded some of the first pay-as-you-go solar home system companies like Mcopa, Phoenix, Mobisol, which have now been both acquired by Engie, and then also PEG, which, according to reports, has been acquired by Bbox recently. And, you know, the PEGO business model really allowed the unbanked with no previous credit record uh, to access financing options for assets that were previously considered unattainable to them, most notably, obviously, the solar home system. And as customers build their credit history through loan repayments, uh, some of the companies that I mentioned, as well as others in the ecosystem, began bundling the, the solar home systems with, with other assets such as TVs, radios, fans, or even uh, sort of uh, loan offerings such for school fees, for instance, such as explored by Mcopa and Phoenix. And with the off-grid sector maturing, companies have started specializing in different parts of the value chain, such as production, distribution, and consumer financing, while offering a wider range of products, uh, such as even pay-as-you-go smartphones like Copa Das, uh, water pumps, uh, refrigerators, and cook stoves. We explored the sort of a cook stove add-on model uh, with a grantee in Zambia that's called uh, Vitalite. And we, in terms of our funding, we really initially um, focused on funding off-grid solar uh, models in East Africa initially. But then once obviously the sector there grew quite a bit and there wasn't necessarily as much of a need for catalytic grant funding, we focused on 
trying to replicate the PEGO model in markets where in more sort of nascent markets in, in West Africa, and, and then also try to explore different models. Like I mentioned, the add-on product model that Vitalite explored, where it sold a solar home system in conjunction with a smartphone and a clean cooking stove. Or um, we've also supported, for instance, uh, Solar Works in Mozambique, which was trying to leverage big data, weather data, in order kind of to optimize the solar home system offering. But overall, we've definitely seen a tremendous growth in the sector. And if you look at the follow-on funding that our grantees have been able to attract, uh, most of this has been in the energy sector. So of the 309 million pounds, our grantees have been able to attract in follow-on funding after the grants, remember the sort of total grant disbursement of the innovation fund collectively is, is a bit more than 9 million pounds. So this has been able to, to lead to 309 million pounds in follow-on funding. But of that 309 million, the bulk of it, 295 million is in the energy sector. And within that, most of it go, is in the solar home system sector. And when the GSMA began awarding grants in Pago Solar around 2013, the annual investment in the sector was around 20 million per year. And now this has risen to more than 300 million per year between 2017 and 2020. And in 2021, this amount rose by about uh, 50% to reach 450 million. Obviously, um, debt investments in particular uh, rising quite a lot uh, within that period, but it just shows that you know the sector has been able to attract significant commercial funding um, after we initially started funding in the sector in 2013. And it's obviously true that there's still sort of important investment gaps in the sector as well. I mean, Google points out that about 90% of the investments going into off-grid solar are going to kind of the top 10 companies in the market and sort of smaller and nascent and local service providers often face more significant funding gaps, but definitely we've seen, you know, a huge rise in funding in off-grid solar. And we believe that, you know, part of the reason why we're seeing that growth is not just obviously the investment figures that I've just mentioned and the realization that Pago Solar is a a unique, unique way for underserved customers in low and middle income countries, especially in remote rural areas to access energy services quickly. It's also obviously really much connected to the growth of mobile money ecosystems. And through our research within the GSMA Digital Utilities Program, we've kind of highlighted how Go Solar is actually a very valuable innovation to mobile operators as well as it helps them increase their market uh, penetration in rural areas um, while also leading to digital adoption of mobile services by Pago Solar customers who end up using mobile money more intensively, not just to uh, pay for solar services, but also for other use cases such as P2P transfers. They end up charging their phones because they have energy, which leads to higher voice and data usage as well. And all of this points to kind of the synergy between rural connectivity, digital connectivity and rural energy access, which is a really interesting space that we are looking at. Right. You know, one thing people think about, they link the pay-as-you-go industry with the mobile money and they link it with East Africa. Did the industry ever grow beyond East Africa to West Africa or other parts of Africa for that matter? The pay-go model initially thrived, particularly in East Africa, also because obviously the, the mobile money ecosystem in that region is particularly vibrant. 
particularly in Kenya, but also in, in countries like Uganda. But for instance, uh, what we found quite interesting, if you look at Google sort of investment trends uh, for 2020, that was actually the year, the first year that West Africa was able to attract more investment into the sector than East Africa, you know, at 142 million versus 70 million. Obviously, we've seen a lot of uh, digital payment and mobile money ecosystems in uh, West F Africa grow as well. And there's a huge market potential in countries like uh, Nigeria for pay go solutions as well. And now with the changes in the mobile money regulation in Nigeria, where mobile operators are now able to provide mobile money services at greater scale, we think that's going to lead to even more growth in the sector. And there are a lot of prominent Pago solar providers who already are um, operating in Nigeria at scale. Some of our innovation fund grantees, such, such as Lumos, are also playing an important role there. So we think that's going to certainly lead to, lead to a lot of expansion in, in that region as well. But it obviously always depends on the digital payment ecosystem as well as obviously the interplay between you know the off-grid sector and and some of the, the on-grid ambitions of the country as well. Right. Okay. Great. And did the energy companies move from rural to urban areas, which kind of prompted the urban thinking? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. We kind of seen two dynamics with regards to that. So on the one hand, in the Pago solar space, I think there was a realization um, that you know. Off-grid uh, solutions cannot are not necessarily always equivalent to rural solutions because, uh, frankly, a lot of urban areas in in some African countries with large energy access gaps are also off-grid. So, for instance, in, in my home country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the, the urban energy access rate is 19 percent. And similarly, there are countries like Madagascar, where the urban energy access rate is only 22%, or Liberia, where it's 16%. And even in some African countries where there is a bit of a higher sort of formal access rate, uh, grid um, unreliability is a huge challenge where blackouts are very frequent. So for instance, in Nigeria, there's a shocking statistic that 4,600 outage hours every year in Nigeria. And, the, and that's equivalent to 190 days. So grid outages are a huge challenge for both households and businesses. And what we also see is that in a lot of these countries, especially where there, there's a proliferation of uh, grid un, unreliability, and that's a huge challenge, you see a huge presence of diesel generators, which are obviously polluting, but they're also expensive, particularly in the current context of high fuel prices as well. In Nigeria, the Access to Energy Institute um, estimates that diesel generators have six times the generation capacity of the grid, um, which means that um, you know there's a huge opportunity for off-grid solar providers to displace uh, some of this uh, consumption of, of uh, that goes right now to the diesel generator industry and to replace it with more sustainable solutions. And we also see that in a market, for instance, in um, uh, Nigeria, a report uh, by the CDC, I think now known as British International Investment, found that 60% of uh, Lumos's customer base, solar home system company that we've previously supported, is urban or peri-urban. Another example is a company called Zola, which have launched a product called Infinity which is uniquely tailored to the challenge of grid unreliability. So the, the system 
automatically switches off when the grid does work, but switches back on when it doesn't. Similarly, in the DRC, B-Box, a prominent off-grid solar provider, has primarily focused a lot of its attention on cities in the DRC, which are underserved. Um, initially, in eastern Congo cities such as Goma and Bukavu, but also the capital, Kinshasa, where a lot of people also uh, face issues related to grid unreliability because the state-owned utility Snell is notoriously unreliable. So we've seen a lot of examples like this, and I guess this is sort of solar home system companies focusing on urban areas in countries with a large energy access gap. And then secondly, what we've also seen is the proliferation of the PAYGO model. Uh, we kind of call it a PAYGO solar to PAYGO everything. So George, tell me when companies move from rural to urban, as B-Box example that you gave of B-Box and Numos, you know, just to help our audience understand this, do the systems grow in size? Because obviously in the rural areas, people need less electricity, but in the urban areas, people use it for their larger houses, shops, businesses. You know, just tell us a little bit about how the size change happens. Thanks, Sandra. It really depends. So in, in some instances, solar home system providers that operated in Nigeria, for instance, have tailored the systems to be able to power um, more appliances. In other instances, um, the ability to pay of urban uh, customers isn't necessarily that much greater than those in rural areas. So if you, for instance, compare a urban customer in a city like uh, Goma in the DRC to a rural customer in Kenya, obviously the urban customer will likely have a bit of a higher willingness and ability to pay, but it's not as, as much of a difference uh, as in, in the Nigeria-Kenya comparison because of the level, obviously, widespread poverty and the level of underservedness in the, in the DRC. But generally speaking, yes, system sizes um, have increased to kind of accommodate the interests of our urban customers more. Right. System sizes have increased, but also have the type of users changed? from residential to commercial businesses. You know, for example, worldwide, we've had this solar rooftop industry as well, right? Has the off-grid solar, this segment moved up to the solar rooftop sector, or maybe the solar rooftop sector has moved down a little bit to the off-grid sector? It's a really interesting question. I think for, in order to power sort of Business activity, um, a lot of, you know, solar home systems just don't have the required size. And unless we're talking about small sort of shopkeepers or, you know, um, shops that want to offer sort of small scale IT solutions or phone charging options, those can definitely benefit from that proliferation. But when it comes to larger business activity, there needs to be sort of greater generation capacity as well. But um, we've seen some interesting uh, solutions in that space as well. For instance, in Nigeria, there's a company called Rensource, which kind of provides microgrid solutions to, to marketplaces. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's a, a mini grid provider called Nuru, which is working, which installed one of the biggest urban mini grids in the city of Goma, which is powering a lot of business activity there. So I think it's interesting to see some of the developments in the kind of mini grid sector as well and how they relate to the urban energy access challenge. Right. And that brings me to ask you that, you know, we've spoken 
a lot about the pay-as-you-go solar industry because you know that's where a large number of grants were located. But you also provided uh, uh, some grants to mini grid companies as well, right? I remember. And can you give us a little sense of did investments move into the mini grid sector in the same way as it did in the pay-as-you-go solar industry? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. It's a really interesting one, and I think it relates to some of the things that I was speaking about earlier with regards to the role um, of the off-grid solar sector in urban areas as well. I think, you know, obviously, um, pay-go companies are benefiting from the opportunities in some of these uh, markets like Nigeria and DRC that I mentioned. But obviously, solar home systems are not, not uh, sort of long-term sustainable energy access solutions for urban areas when it comes to powering business activity, right? So if you look at integrated uh, energy planning uh, by a lot of rural electrification agency, the sort of optimal long-term role of solar home systems is kind of seen to be in sort of remote settlements where grid extensions uh, would take a long time to get to and the areas also where there's not enough energy demand uh, for mini grids. But mini grids, actually, we've provided eight grants uh, to mini grid providers throughout our kind of program history. And five of those have been to power what's called an anchor-based client model, where we're really trying to look at the uh, synergies between energy access and digital connectivity that I was also alluding to earlier. And under the anchor business client model, a telecom tower uh, serves as the anchor client um, of uh, of a mini grid, which then also uh, provides power to the surrounding uh, community. And we've uh, trialed that model initially when we started as a program, and there were a lot of unique challenges to that model. For example, um, you know, stakeholder alignment, telecom, telcos think very differently about electrification and, and, and the scale they think about the subject as well than mini grid providers did at the time. And then it's also often difficult to bring the the level of energy demand of the surrounding community to a level where it's profitable for the mini grid. We've done some really interesting projects, for instance, in in Nepal with a company called GAM Power, which did this ABC model with the telecom operator NCEL. And mobile money was used for bill payment and smart meters were deployed to monitor individual consumption. And we in that model, we saw that the small business activity of uh, customers in the villages that were powered by GAM power microgrids was especially critical for the uh, financial sustainability of the model. But we also saw that small businesses were the one that benefited most from the arrival of the uh, mini grid. And that also points to a lot of research kind of in, in kind of the energy access space, a lot of academic research, which suggests that energy access is the most transformational when it's linked to business activity and productive use. We've also supported another model with Electricité de Madagascar in in Madagascar, where a market validation grant uh, to EDM to test the commercial viability of providing electricity to off-grid villages in in northern Madagascar, alongside, um, you know, know, supporting um, the mobile operators, Telmas, off-grid mobile base stations. And quite excitingly, Axian Group and Sajimcom, which were two of the uh, companies supporting this project, uh, created a venture arm uh, for energy called WeLight, which recently received major um, investment from Norfund. And uh, they're now expanding in Madagascar, but also in other markets uh, such as Mali. So that shows that while the 
uh, mini grid sector has has taken some more time to uh, to scale the way the Pego solar home system sector has. There are some exciting new initiatives and there's some really important work being done by organizations like the Africa Mini Grid Associations, but also by some investors that are focusing on mini grids, especially to really uh, overcome uh, some of the barriers to scale. Though it must be said that obviously the mini grid sector is also more prone to, to challenges such as changing government uh, regulation, supply chain issues, and obviously also the difficulty of, of assessing um, energy demand, although there are a lot of new data-driven solutions uh, that are trying to address that challenge as well. Right. And I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, sort of saying that there is some opportunity for mini-grid projects to develop. At least you're seeing some opportunities because I know I've been involved in this quite a few years and it's been extremely challenging. But one thing is also the pay-as-you-go industry has moved beyond household electrification, both in rural areas and, and urban areas, which you have talked about earlier, but has become, for example, you know, being used in productive loads in agriculture, solar irrigation, for example. And I know you have some experience there. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, we've seen a lot of interest in solar irrigation particularly. And interesting because we've recently announced an innovation fund round, which came after the one on digital urban services that I alluded to earlier. And that was all on around climate resilience and a lot of applicants to that round. We haven't announced sort of who we will be awarding grants to yet, but um, a lot of the applicants to that round have been in the solar water pump uh, space. Through our innovation fund, we've uh, supported Sun Culture as well. And this is obviously one of the pioneers in the Pago um, solar irrigation space. They've uh, scaled a lot, have been able to attract a lot of funding uh, from follow-on investors and have been also trialing very um, innovative financing models, uh, including with local banks and financing institutions in Kenya. But also more recently, they've struck a partnership uh, with B-Box in Togo to also benefit from this wider um, subsidy program, uh, which, which will end up providing uh, subsidies to farmers to acquire solar irrigation um, through um, cultures technology. And I think what we've seen um, through that grant is that there's, there's, solar water pumps tend to have a quite uh, catalytic impact because they are quite focused on increasing uh, the productivity of farmers and they're quite focused on increasing the, the business activity of productive use cases. Um, so that's why I think the sector is going to continue to see a lot of growth. Great. So the other thing that we must talk about when we talk about energy is, of course, cooking. And I know you have a couple of examples there. Yeah, clean cooking is definitely also an important sector for us, um, especially because sort of the, the clean cooking gap um, under sort of SDG 7 is even greater than the gap uh, to energy access. So um, a lot more action needs to happen in, in this space. Um, we, we haven't uh, provided as many grants as sort of in, in the solar home system or mini grid space in the clean cooking space, but one project that was quite interesting was the, the two grants we've provided to uh, Copa Gas. We, we've initially funded a pilot uh, of, of their technology in, in Dar es Salaam, uh, Tanzania, and have then funded uh, them through a subsequent market validation grant, which enabled them to scale. 
and and they've developed an LP basically an LPG uh, smart meter which allows urban um, customers in that are sort of low income urban customers and primarily living in informal settlements to access uh, clean cooking uh, solutions um, through LPG um, on a pay as you go uh, basis so they can be gas can be consumed uh, incrementally Copagas has even developed a solution through which some households can, different households can share cooking gas amongst themselves, uh, which is quite interesting for, you know, circumstances like informal settlements where different households may be able to rely on the same uh, cylinder. But digital solutions were very core to their business from the onset. And I'll expand on that a bit in a bit. But um, the most important thing about what, what we were really happy about is that in January 2020, Circle Gas um, acquired uh, Copa Gas's LPG smart metering technology in a transaction worth uh, $25 million. Uh, and we think that this acquisition is actually the first ever sort of pure private equity investment in the uh, clean cooking uh, technology sector, and it gives uh, you know Circle Gas, as I mentioned, access to the PayGo LPG uh, technology. Now, Circle Gas is it, it, Circle Gas itself is an interesting uh, company because Safaricom, Kenya's leading mobile operator, is an investor in Circle Gas as well, and Circle Gas will be introducing sort of the Copa Gas prepaid smart metering solutions in in, in Kenya through its subsidiary MGAS, and it will uh, leverage um, Safaricom's obviously mobile money platform, but also its narrowband uh, IoT uh, network um, in order to um, serve customers. Um, and this is going to be, uh, and, and this is uh, really exciting for us because obviously um, the way we look at our catalytic funding, as I mentioned before, is, is how much um, private sector investment and how much scale can it enable and to see such a great acquisition in a sector like clean cooking uh, was really great for us. And it was also really great to see a mobile operator like Safaricom really seeing value in a clean cooking a service provider and seeing strategic value there. This is obviously extremely important. I think uh, we all understand what the prepaid smart cards are in the cooking gas industry, but what is narrowband IoT platform? So this is a great question um, because we are um, working with a lot of different innovators that are leveraging a range of IoT solutions. But basically, the uh, narrowband IoT is sort of a, a mobile operator-led IoT um, a network. In a lot of low- and middle-income countries, there aren't um, any uh, mobile operator-led uh, IoT networks um, deployed yet. Um, there are, for instance, in South Africa, but in, in a lot of other low- and middle-income countries, particularly in Africa, they're emerging. So there are other sort of IoT network solutions such as LoRa as well. But this is indeed a very uh, complex sector. Um, so we are actually um, in the process of publishing a report about IoT solutions in low and middle income countries uh, during, during this year. And we're looking to, to also talk a bit more about the opportunities that we see in the sector, but also how um, private sector innovators and utility service providers can uh, navigate the different offerings uh, and hardware solutions uh, that, that exist out there. It's definitely a very interesting, but also very complex and highly technical uh, space. And because we've had a lot of innovators uh, navigating some of these challenges without necessarily 
always having access to all the information on complexity, we think, you know, this is also a key area for us to do more research in. So this is why we're really excited about the report. Um, maybe just to add on to on two things on clean cooking, we're really excited to also learn more about, you know, other solutions in the clean cooking sector, because obviously gas um, is, is one solution, but it's really, it's, 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 it's a hotly debated topic, whether low and middle income countries in particular should focus more on gas as a clean cooking solutions or on other solutions such as, such as e-cooking or uh, for instance, for instance, biomass as well. So through our new innovation fund on digital urban services, we'll be supporting a company called ATEC in Bangladesh, which is going to provide e-cooking solutions to customers in Bangladesh through a PaysyGo solution. And then also another company called Power Stove in Nigeria that's um, going to um, work on biomass cookstoves with an IoT solution. Uh, so really, really excited to learn more about the clean cooking sector and the role of digital innovation in it um, through th those two grand projects as well. Right. And I think that is important because in the context of uh, this clean energy access, perhaps in a more rapid progress is being made on making electricity available as opposed to cooking solutions available. So in Bangladesh, for example, where ATC, your grantee is active, or Cambodia, where as well, electricity access problems have been have, in the countries have made very rapid progress, but people still use outmoded ways of cooking. So using e-cooks is another interesting option in these contexts. Having said that, uh, one thing uh, that I'm really happy to that you you're producing a, a report on on low and uh, IoT solutions for low and middle income countries because I remember I have struggled with helping one company, you know, just get to the complexities of some of these LoRa technologies. And maybe that is another time we, I should get you back on the podcast to sort of demystify this. While you're saying that, one thing I remembered, you know, people talk about as if pay-as-you-go and mobile money was easy, but even that, there are complexities involved. And I remember you having done some interesting project which helped the whole industry. Just remind me of it. What it I mean, I, the, I'll def, describe the problem to you. The problem is that when a when a customer in a rural area, let's say in you know in rural Kenya or somewhere else, makes a payment, it was not immediately obvious where the payment came from, right? So the, often the customer made the payment, but had to wait for a long time for the system to get up and running. And in the meantime, was making the, to the call center. And you did a technology inserted technology piece that helped solve the problem. Yes, no, that's a great point. And, and thanks also for highlighting that there are definitely complexities and, you know, the, the scaling of the sector, you know, involves um, overcoming a lot of them. But yeah, one key challenge uh, that we identified that was a barrier to the scaling of the Pago ecosystem is the, the need for instant payment uh, notifications. So when a user needs to unlock a solar home system, to receive, you know, solar services, they usually pay uh, using mobile money. Um, the mobile money provider then uh, transfers the user's payment notification to the PayG provider, but oftentimes they ran into a problem because there was no real-time notification to, to mobile money providers that payment has been made and by which customer that payment has been made. So then the next step would be that the PayGo service provider sort of would have to manually validate 
and process a payment uh, notification. But the problem with that is th this manual process is often prone to errors and often uh, causes delays in service delivery, which obviously erodes trust in Pago services. Because if you're kind of a rural uh, service provider, you want to make sure that that your customers get the service they want immediately after paying, because otherwise they, they'll think that, um, you know, this new innovative technology might be a scam. The issue when PayGo provider is not able to immediately deliver the services following uh, the payment, it erodes trust. And especially because this is an innovative service um, and obviously a lot of people don't don't know how it works properly. So if it doesn't lead to service delivery immediately, that, that's the concern. And the problem is that this manual process of validation and, and the processing of the payment notification can be avoided if the Apego solar provider integrates uh, with a mobile money provider. The issue with that is that there are over 144 uh, mobile money uh, deployments in Africa alone. And if you're a Pago solar provider working in the market with, let's say, three or four different um, mobile money providers, you would obviously want to integrate with all of them so that your customers can use any mobile money service they, they please in order to make payments. But unfortunately, oftentimes the integration time can be significant. So the, the time it takes uh, for a Pago solar provider to integrate with a mobile operator's mobile money platform. Some operators have worked hard on making this easier and, and facilitating this, but it, it still remains a challenge. And a lot of nascent and uh, new entrants into markets even find it difficult to convince you know, mobile operators as to why they even should integrate with their platform, because it obviously also takes some effort for the mobile operator to do this integration and a lot of them do not necessarily see the point to integrate with sort of a nascent uh, company so our solution was really aimed at addressing this uh, this challenge of lacking instant payment notifications and the long time it takes to integrate with a mobile money uh, with a mobile operator's mobile money service and um, that has led us to create the instant payment uh, notification hub where when sort of the user pays using mobile money, the, uh, the IPN hub then automatically relays the payment notification to the Pago service provider. The Pago service provider then validates that request and processes uh, the authorization of service, which then uh, leads the, the customer to, to get access to, to solar services. The IPN hub has really uh, reduced the time it takes for uh, Pago solar uh, companies to provide services to customers. And it's been especially important for new market entrants that want to integrate with multiple uh, mobile money service providers at a time. Um, has been quite key for some of our grantees as well. For example, Vitalite, for instance, when they scaled uh, from, from Zambia to Malawi, they relied on the IPN hub to gain access to instant payment notification in, in Malawi without having to go through the process of mobile money integrations with all the providers and with all the mobile money providers in a new market. It's still desirable, obviously, to go through some of these integrations. But in the meantime, the IPN app offers a great solution for, for new uh, market entrants, as I mentioned. We, as a GSMA, actually 
processed a lot of these innovations initially in-house, but obviously as a foundation, we're not well placed to manage uh, an innovation like the IPN hub um, forever. Um, so we've decided to actually to transition the IPN hub to the private sector, um, to a um, payment uh, a company called Bionic, um, um, which, which acquired the IPN hub. Bionic was also recently uh, acquired by another fintech company in, in Africa, which uh, you might have heard of, Sanjoy, it's called MFS Africa. And we hope now through MFS Africa and their large footprint throughout the continent, the uh, IPN hub solution will be scaled to even for, for even more markets so even more stakeholders can leverage it. This just speaks to the complexity of deploying solutions in this area. In my opinion, you know, just to sort of go back to the beginning and the objective of talking to you, George, to help other foundations understand what it takes to promote innovation, I think, you know, hearing you speak, one thing they should take away is that it requires putting a team together which deeply understands the space and, you know, is working with companies to understand you know, where the challenges are and you know, what industry-wide solutions are needed. So that's a message I would like to give to them. I think we've talked a lot about energy and cooking. Let's move to water. You said at the beginning that, that most of the additional funding that, you, that your grants leveraged went into energy. But I think we are seeing some traction in water as well, right? We definitely do see some traction in water as well. And obviously, given the service gaps that exist in the water sector as well, um, we think this is a really important area to focus on for digital innovators as well. But I think it is also a reality that the water sector and the sanitation sector where we work in as well is not equivalent to the energy sector. And we also have to take into account different roles that governments play, the public good attributes in the water sector, and, and also, you know, considerations regarding willing to, to, to willingness and ability to pay. Uh, that being said, uh, we, we've, we're quite excited about some of our innovations that we've already funded in the water sector, and we think they have had some quite significant impact, both in terms of a social commercial, but also development impact. So one of the examples of the, the solutions that we funded, I think Sanjay, you know this one well as well, is an, an organization called WonderKid, and it offers software as a service solutions such as billing, customer management, and revenue management for water utilities in African countries. Uh, we've provided WonderKid with a grant in conjunction with Safaricom to work with four water utilities in Kenya and uh, Kiwasco, uh, um, one of the four water utilities supported by the project in the city of uh, Kisumu in Kenya, uh, recorded a 28% increase in revenue collected and an 8% uh, uh, increase in revenue billed after working with WonderKid. And the average complaint resolution time um, through, uh, by which uh, what, um, the utility was able to resolve uh, customer complaints uh, dropped from more than 15 days, uh, six days. And what's quite exciting for us on the WonderKid example, a team of Kenyan technologists um, that, that has uh, funded and scaled the company. And also the company, as I mentioned, initially worked with four water utilities through the project we're, we funded. Um, but now it has worked with over 30 water utilities in five African countries. And obviously by partnering with utility and providing services to it directly, you're able to impact quite wide customer base and 
help the utility you know address challenges such as revenue management and also decreasing non-revenue water extending services to to low income um, customers as well and we've written a report kind of looking at the scaling journey of WonderKit uh, called Scaling Digital Solutions in the Water Sector, if you're interested to learn more. Another um, company we're quite excited about is uh, CityTabs. It's a company we've supported in Niger initially to uh, deploy a prepaid smart metering solution in, in collaboration with the Société d'Exploitation d'Eau du Niger, SEN, in Niger, and also the mobile operator Orange uh, Niger. So we've provided, similarly to Copagas, provided two grants to CityTaps, and the latest one was to continue scaling its service in the capital of Niger and Niamey by deploying 1,325 smart meters. And what's exciting about CityTaps is the prepaid smart metering solution enables utilities such as SEN in Niger to extend service delivery to low-income customers without um, taking on the financial risk that's associated with it. It enables, uh, by, by offering a prepaid solutions, low-income customers that wouldn't be able to sort of pay for services on a monthly basis can pay incrementally uh, for water services on a prepaid basis. And those water meters that prepaid installs pay, uh, transfer the payments in real time so that water utilities can improve their cash flow and, and balance sheet. And CityTabs has expanded uh, you know, their service offering and to not just work in Niger, where um, the utility SEN has ordered 10,000 additional prepaid smart meters, but also in Burkina Faso, Mali, Senegal, and Kenya. And it's been able to attract additional funding from private sector um, investors, as well as sort of foundations and impact investors like the Global Innovation Fund and Vital Foundation, uh, for example. And we've seen that this um, sort of model of prepaid smart metering is also potentially unlocking interesting uh, financing models where commercial uh, lenders such as banks in Kenya are looking at the digital payment stream that uh, sort of city taps prepaid smart meters are sort of guaranteeing and are looking at whether that can be used as collateral for investments into, these, into the prepaid smart metering hardware infrastructure. So this is a potentially great way for utilities to also attract some of the vital private investment that they need in order to extend a service offering to low-income customers. Extremely interesting, actually. And one thing that I am realizing as you are speaking is that you know we discussed the rural-urban divide, if you may, in the energy business models. But in the water sector, is probably a lot of it is urban, right? Yeah, I think in the water sector, we've supported some uh, rural um, water solutions as well, looking at solutions like smart hand pumps, but also done an interesting project with Safe Water Network in Ghana, looking at the role that mobile-based revenue collection can play in making sort of rural water service delivery more effective. But I think given the huge challenges related to rapid urbanization we see in Africa and Asia, you know, 90% of total ur urban growth from now until 2050 will be concentrated in Africa and in Asia. And a lot of utility service providers are already, you know, facing challenges related to this, this rapid process of urbanization, which takes place in a context of 
you know, huge inequality is a particularly large challenge to formal water service delivery. So you see huge gaps in access to safe water services when you look at sort of the top 20% of the urban income distribution versus the bottom 20%. And you also see a huge proliferation of private water cartels in, in cities throughout low and middle income countries, which sell water which isn't sort of um, safely managed necessarily to uh, to customers in informal settlements at you know 40 times the price that the formal utility would charge and that's almost a tax on poverty as people that are already uh, facing a lot of hardship because they live in informal settlements now also have to you know spend more time and money in order to access uh, water services which further perpetuates poverty and we've seen a lot of innovators trying to trying to address that challenge. So, for instance, in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, we've um, supported a really, really great innovator um, called Minhas Chodhori and his team at Drinkwell has provided, who, who's come up with a water ATM solution, which he is delivering, interestingly, in partnership with the utility called Dhaka Wasa. And that model enables uh, Dhaka Wasa to provide safely managed water services through Drinkwell's uh, water ATM in Dhaka's informal settlements and customers of Drinkwell's services are able to access uh, safely managed drinking water and also decrease the time that they spend accessing that water compared with, you know, un unsafe alternatives like informal tanker trucks. And it's really exciting that we've seen the World Bank as well as P4G uh, support the the scaling of this model both in in Dhaka but also in uh, another city in Bangladesh called Chittagong and we we think also the increasing stresses that cities will face when it comes to climate change I mean most cities expected to um, you know um, uh, experience the most water stress um, over the next thirty years are located in low and middle income countries these solutions will become even more vital and we hope that more impact investors and donors will focus on the challenge because uh, we think that you know urban water service delivery will be a key development challenge going forward uh, you know making sure that water is, is served affordable and reliable fashion and the same goes for sanitation as well right as uh, you know these countries urbanize in the informal area there'll be the sanitation challenges as well and you have supported a few projects there Absolutely. In a lot of cities in low and middle income countries, low income urban population primarily relies on non-sewered uh, sanitation. And obviously, in, in contexts where there are informal settlements or unplanned settlements, extending sewer networks can be extremely challenging and costly for the city, especially if you know there's already a lot of underinvestment in the sanitation sector. So there need to be solutions, innovative solutions that can respond to the challenge of non-sewered sanitation. One such solution are container-based uh, sanitation providers, which use sort of waterless toilets and uh, circular economy solutions to you know, transform, uh, treat, uh, transport, collect, and, and contain uh, the waste. One such solution is Luat um, in Madagascar, which we've supported by enabling it to integrate digital revenue collection and logistics management uh, platform. Another one is uh, Sanergy, which works in Nairobi, but also in Kisumu in Kenya at a, at a quite big scale. 
to provide uh, container-based con container sanitation uh, services. In terms of, you know, the role of digital technology in this space, I think, you know, the coordination of logistics through mobile apps and GIS uh, technology is quite important, given that the gross margin of some of these container-based uh, sanitation providers is uh, very sensitive to the frequency of collection. So being able to being able to manage logistics more effectively is really important. Uh, digital revenue collection can also decrease, you know, operational costs uh, quite significantly. And then there's also enterprise resource planning uh, where digital solutions can potentially uh, reduce the cost for some container-based sanitation service providers. For our new innovation fund round, we're exploring a, a different solution, another container-based sanitation solution by the public toilet model through a solution uh, called through a company called Bumijo, which is going to be providing affordable sanitation through public toilets uh, in Dhaka. So really excited to learn more about the sector there. Also wanting to explore some synergies between, you know, topics like fecal sludge management and, and waste management. Um, but I think what's what's really important is to understand that obviously in a sanitation sector, willingness and ability to pay is very different than in sectors like energy. The role of subsidies and public finance is very critical. And we're really excited to see for which kind of models governments, private sector innovators and donors together can find approaches that can respond to the challenges of non-sewered sanitation. And it's really interesting to see initiatives like the citywide inclusive sanitation initiative by the Gates Foundation, which is uh, being supported uh, by a couple of other organizations, which is really trying to create a, an enabling environment and a framework which will allow public sector to create an enabling uh, environment uh, for private uh, sector innovators to feed into because oftentimes uh, the service mandate for sanitation still rests with um, you know public sector authorities either water utilities and municipalities and they need to provide clarity so that private sector innovators and and other partners can uh, clearly feed into an existing framework what's also potentially interesting is to look at cross subsidization opportunities where certain private sector innovators might use the profit margin they gain from other revenue streams or by, by serving richer customers to use those to, to then provide subsidized access to low-income customers. Great. With that, I have to say thank you to you, George. It's been a wonderful conversation, but we're not ending now, actually. In the next episode, we will come back and distill from all these business models that you have had rich experience in working with and supporting to understand some broader lessons around innovation. And in particular, the issue of partnerships between smaller companies and the larger companies that help make innovation possible in lower and middle income countries in the climate tech domain. So don't go away, come back right here for the second conversation with George. Thanks a lot, Sanjay. It's been great to speak and yeah, looking forward to a part two of this conversation and really highlighting the interplay between uh, large organizations uh, such as government and corporates and their relationship with the startup ecosystem, uh, since that's been core to our work as well. Thank you.